This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program, for choosing us to be a part of your busy day. We try to do the best that we can to make sure we don't waste any of your time, have all the latest local news for you right now, and we are going to continue right now. So there is a big event that has just been announced, and and they're now advertising for it and trying to uh, get the word out uh, that I want to make you aware of, and it is, of course, something that is at least somewhat in conjunction with and, and sort of a reaction to what's been going on in the country the past few days. So I want you to check this out, and I'll describe it for those of you who are listening on audio only. Well, that's the wrong thing. That's a coronavirus update. There we go. Okay, so you can see this event here. You can see this graphic that they're using to advertise it, uh, and it says, calling for the entire city to come out for the Love Rally on June 13th, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. And you can see there that there's a picture of the Capitol and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it says there, starting downtown at the Capitol steps, marching to the riverfront, free food, free drinks, free mask, registration stations to vote, ending with Biscuits Fireworks Show, hashtag Love Matters. Now, the thing about this event, because it may wind up being an excellent event. And tr- the truth be told, it's actually pretty refreshing to see that. Because the symbol that they're using there is a very uniting symbol in Dr. Martin Luther King. They're not using Black Lives Matter, which even though I think that there may be some people that would use a hashtag like that that do have good intention, Black Lives Matter isn't just a hashtag, it's also an organization. And that organization calls for all kinds of crazy things like socialism. They call for basically a breakdown of the nuclear family, a breakdown of Western civilization. They're in favor of all kinds of things like Palestinian authority taking over Israel. I mean, they are very clearly a political branch that sort of an offshoot and a special interest group of the Democrat Party. They have a lot of their talking points that have nothing to do with black people and improving their lives, have nothing to do with black Americans. They are run by radical socialists, anarchists, so on and so forth. But there are some people that have no idea there even is an organization that still use the hashtag and they, what, you know, they mean something different by that. And I think that the, most of the rank-and-file people aren't like that. But they even didn't go with that because they know the controversial nature and the way that that tends to polarize people, and, and you know, rightfully so, if you know the actual background of what Black Lives Matter does as an organization. And so they use instead the hashtag Love Matters. And everything that is in that graphic, I have no idea what the event's actually going to be like. I don't know who's actually running it. But everything in that graphic makes it seem as though this is something that they want everybody to be able to come out for. They want to stand in unity. It looks like something that's being organized that they want to be peaceful. Because you don't go through these channels and try to make it all official and get permission from the city and everything like that if you're going to engage in a riot. I say all that to say, the commentary I'm about to provide is in no way saying that this particular event or this particular group are bad actors or bad people, because I don't know. I really have no idea about who's organizing this. I'm going to try to do some research and and get back to you on that. But here's what I wanted to point out. It seems to me that there is a pretty stark contrast 
between how the city is treating this and how they treated the Get Back to Work Alabama rally that took place, or at least was supposed to take place, on the Capitol steps about a month ago. And remember that I was there live streaming and covering that rally, that we promoted it here on the show. And I don't know if I necessarily agreed with everything in the platform or everything that everybody that was there said, but by and large, it was a bunch of freedom-loving Americans, several of which had businesses, weren't able to make gain. They just wanted to go back to work to provide for their family. And so that, you may recall, when we were doing our live stream, and we talked about this at Great Deal when we were doing that, they had construction going on that magically had to take place about an hour to two hours before the event happened. And remember, I was there. I saw them setting up the barricades. This wasn't something that they had beforehand. We arrived. I got there like an hour, maybe an hour and a half early. And as I'm arriving, I'm seeing police start putting up construction barricades so that nobody could come. Because remember, this was a drive through rally. We weren't going to congregate. We weren't going to all meet in one place. In fact, we specifically had it set up. I say we as though I was part of the organization. I really wasn't. That was uh, Stand Up Alabama, I believe, is the name of the group that organized that. Uh, I was just there covering it. But anyway, the way that they had their setup, they had it to where people could drive down the main road there in front of the Capitol, step out of their car, come up to the microphone, make a quick statement, jump back in their car, drive off. They never had to come in contact with a single person, at least that was the plan. That's how the thing was organized, because, of course, we were in the throes of coronavirus at the time. You see, with this thing, which coronavirus is still a thing apparently, with this organization, not only are they apparently going to be allowed to congregate in mass in large group in front of the people, they I mean the advertisement literally says that they're encouraging the entire city to come out. And they're saying that it's going to be a march, which uh, if you're going to march, you kind of have to do it outside with a bunch of people in a row. I don't know how clumped together they're going to be, but they can't be real far apart if they're going to be marching. And then it's supposedly going to conclude since it's going to the riverfront. They said it's going to be a biscuits fireworks show. I assume what that means is they're either going to open up the riverfront itself, you know, the park there where the Harriet two is, or they are going to open up Riverwalk Stadium, where the Biscuits play. Either way, they have to get permission from the city to do that. So based on what I'm seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, anybody in the city of Montgomery that that may know something that I don't, based on all the information that is provided to me, it seems as though this thing not only has the blessing of the city, but the city's actually helping them orchestrate it. Which, by the way, that's fine. I've been saying for weeks on end now that there really should be no such thing as a mass gathering outside that is canceled. At least not during the day, which this one's going to be at least partially during the day with the way that we're having, I mean, we're coming up on the summer solstice, so there's a very good chance we will continue to have sunlight until close to 8 p.m. when this thing is supposed to end. So it's going to be mostly in daylight. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think what these people are doing is unsafe. Even if you do have an awful lot of people standing around one another, if you're in sunlight, the transmission rate of this thing is practically non-existent. 
And that was true whether you're in Montgomery. That was true when we did the report on the beach where CNN was trying to make it look like, oh, these crazy lunatics from Alabama are being so cavalier being on the beach six feet apart from each other, not wearing masks around people in their own households. And, oh, my gosh, there, there, there's no attempt to enforce those rules. Where are the police officers telling these people they need to evacuate the sunny beach to make sure that they don't get the virus? That's where we were about a week ago. And now, and remember in response to that, the mayor of our esteemed city, Mayor Stephen Reed, went on CNN to basically go, yep, that's right. There's, there's, they're being so cavalier about it. They're being so reckless by being out there six feet apart from one another on the beach, even though I'm sure there were some people that weren't six feet apart. But if you look at the aerials, you can see that there was a lot of social distancing going on. He goes out there and says, yeah, I'm just... Uh, I'm appalled at how cavalier they're being, and they're going to bring this disease back to Montgomery. Mayor Reed sees that there's going to be this event coming. Oh, yeah, sure. Use the stadium. Cram as many people as you want in there. Use the Capitol steps, even though I'm still convinced that it was Mayor Reed, since it was the MPD doing this, that set up the construction barricades to make sure that there was uh, construction going on during the protest for the Get Back to Work Alabama rally to where they actually had to move the protest from where it was originally intended making it ironically less safe and less able for people to socially distance because they would have to either walk or they would have to stand out there on the street corner as opposed to going up to the podium that they had set up ahead of time. Still convinced that was Mayor Reed's call. Can't prove it, but he seems like the most likely culprit. But yeah, when CNN needed a mouthpiece from the state of Alabama to confirm what they were already saying about how dangerous the beaches in Alabama were, They didn't go to the mayor of Mobile or Gulf Shores or Orange Beach or any of the communities down there in the Gulf. They went to Mayor Reed because they knew he was going to be the good little DNC soldier that they know that he is, that he's going to parrot their talking points and he's going to say exactly what they want to hear. And yet Mayor Reed continued the shtick. It didn't just end there. Mayor Reed continued saying stuff like this as recently as just last week. Let's go ahead and check out this quote in the Montgomery Advertiser from our Mayor Stephen Reed. So you'll see there the headline from the Montgomery Advertiser, Mayor Reed, mask wearing mandate may be presented to city council as early as Tuesday. Oh, and uh, you'll see that I highlighted the date there. What does that date say? Oh, right. 5 p.m. on Friday, May the 29th. So 11 days ago. Mayor Reed was saying, and this is a quote from him, or from the article, Reed said the increase in numbers this week, including four deaths since Thursday alone, is a, quote, new high-water mark that means the tide has not yet turned in this pandemic. We cannot fast-forward this process, Reed said. By doing so, we would slow down or reverse the progress that we have made. That's why we're moving cautiously why we're moving very deliberately. And by the way, here is another thing. So Mayor Reed, who is saying, yeah, we're we're probably going to have to mandate in the city of Montgomery. You can't even walk around on the street in a sunny day wearing a mask. Uh, You have to wear a mask if you're going to be walking around the sidewalks there in Montgomery. We're going to make that mandatory to make sure that we're not spreading the virus because we've hit a new high watermark. Uh, We're having more deaths and, and more coronavirus cases than we ever have, which, by the way, the case number in Montgomery is going up. That is true. Mayor Reed is correct in that. 
But what's ridiculous here is that he's saying that we're, we're going to have a mandatory mask just like we did or, or just like the city of Birmingham did with Mayor Woodfin, despite the fact that there's no evidence that it actually transmits outside. In fact, the vast majority of evidence points to the opposite, that it only really spreads in close contact with another human being when you're inside. Despite that, he's saying we're going to put up mandatory masks, even though the World Health Organization can't freaking make up its mind whether masks are actually effective at preventing the spread of the virus or not. And not to be outdone by himself, here is again Mayor Reed on again May the 29th, Friday, 11 days ago, where Mayor Reed said, or you can see this headline, Montgomery wants the state to consider localized, quote, shelter-in-place order, city ponders mandatory mask. Now, this is a quote from Mayor Reed again. Our cases have not plateaued. We're not out of this crisis. We're still in the middle of it, said Reed on Friday. Even though we all want to get back to where we were prior to this pandemic, we can't force that. The, move we try to, the more we try to force it, the longer we're going to stay in it. We want businesses back full throttle more than anyone, but we can't force that at the expense of our long-term progress in this community. Oh, all right, Mayor Reed. So we're in the middle of this pandemic. Montgomery's in panic time. You went on CNN to uh, to, to peddle the panic porn and to make sure everybody knew, guys, we're in the middle of this. Montgomery's a hotbed. And unless you think, well, Caleb, that was... You know, 11 days ago, which granted, not exactly ancient history, but maybe the, med- the numbers in Montgomery have gotten better. Oh, nay, nay. They have not. In fact, they have gotten worse. Now, I never was in favor of government-mandated shutdowns. I'm not making the case that we should stay shut down. Never have made that case. I'm not making the case that we should be invoking these masks. What I am saying is, though, there is a blatant and obvious double standard to any fair-minded person looking at how Mayor Reed and the city of Montgomery handled and talked about the protesters in the Get Back to Work Alabama protest and this event here. That all of a sudden, when it's an event that might make them look good or something that somewhat fits their agenda... Oh, yeah, roll out the red carpet, whatever you guys need. You can use Riverwalk Stadium, you can use the riverfront, you can use the Capitol steps. We don't care if there's 10,000 of you smashed up together, breathing on each other. We don't care. And again, I don't think that that's necessarily dangerous if you're in the blazing June Alabama sun. But the point is, he said that it was, and now he's saying that it wasn't. When it was a bunch of protesters that Mayor Reed disagreed with, then they were a bunch of dangerous radicals that needed to be curtailed, that he had to shut down the road. Again, I'm still convinced that was Mayor Reed, that we have to shut down the road in front of the Capitol to make sure that they don't do it. And by the way, they've still not done any construction on it. Still not. That was a brand new paved road. Still haven't done any construction on that. They did that specifically to stop that protest from happening, or at the very least, try to stymie it. On this thing, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll do whatever you want to. We'll, we'll help you gather the people up in close quarters. We'll put you in Riverwalk Stadium. <sighs> there are no words. This is the most insane double standard I've ever seen. In the course of 11 days, we went from Mayor Reed saying that 
this is going to be the end of the world. We're going to have to shut down the city again, even though the state opened it back up. We're going to have to do a local shutdown here in Montgomery. We're going to have to mandate that every single person wear a mask in freaking June in Alabama. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's perfectly safe. Go out, have fun. Gather up as many people as you want to and march down to the riverfront. And I'm going to reiterate one more time, unless people take this out of context or you just now join the program. I'm not against the event. In fact, I'm considering going to it. I think it might be a really good thing. But what kills me is Mayor Reed, when it was small businesses that were struggling and saying, can we please open up? We're trying to feed our families here. Mayor Reed's like, nope, too dangerous. You guys are radicals for even suggesting that we should open up. You guys are nuts and you have to be stopped. When these guys do it, sure, why not? Give you the key to the city. The only plausible explanation that I've come up with And it's something that really just confirmed what I already knew. Mayor Reed is a very loyal soldier to the DNC. He does whatever they want him to do. He watches MSNBC and CNN to get his liberal talking points, and then he adjusts his policy accordingly. He's not somebody that is sticking up for and listening to the citizens of Montgomery. He's trying to do what will most ingratiate him to the National Democrat Party so that he can get a job a little bit higher up with them at some point. The man's a political opportunist. Only instead of being, you know, a populist where he just sticks his finger in the wind and waits to see which way the political winds are blowing, which granted is not the best policy for being a leader, but at the very least, at least you are listening to the people when you do that. Mayor Reed says whatever he thinks is going to help him move up in the ranks in the Democrat Party. I didn't agree with a lot of what Todd Strange did. He and I didn't have a great relationship, and and I thought that he was way too big government for my taste, which, I mean, granted, I'm basically a federalist libertarian, so virtually everybody is too big government for my taste. But nonetheless, I had my disagreements with Strange. I didn't like everything that he did. I was pretty critical of him on a pretty regular basis. But at least he wasn't a shill for his party in Washington and did whatever they asked him to. And no other explanation makes sense, especially when you consider that the protests that happened when we were talking about reopening the economy and trying to get the shutdown ended, that that protest happened at a time when Montgomery had one of the lowest rates of coronavirus in the state. Now, Montgomery is only tailing Mobile, which, by the way, has almost double its population, We are only trailing Mobile County by a few hundred cases. We have a far greater percentage of our population that is infected with the coronavirus right now when this event is is scheduled to take place in just a few days than it was when it was the stand-up Alabama people. I don't want him to cancel the event, but at least it would show some semblance of consistency. I think these people absolutely have a right to go out and march and exercise their First Amendment rights just like the stand-up Alabama people did. What ticks me off is that people like Mayor Reed that are on a power trip start picking and choosing the political groups that they like and the ones that they don't and use that power to prevent people that they don't like from exercising their rights. That is as un-American as it gets. 
Now, one more story that I wanted to put out there, which is uh, not really an abridgment of rights per se, and, and I don't think that it goes to the extent that the last story we did, but it's still one that I think is, is fairly significant. And this one just flabbergasted me. The Birmingham Housing Authority has decided to end its partnership with Church of the Highlands. And essentially what they were doing, the memorandum that they, uh, that they had with Church of the Highlands, is that they were getting together and having them help people, I think, in housing projects. I didn't really understand exactly all that because the, the article didn't make clear exactly what the relationship was. But from what I gather, what they were doing is they were helping the poor, they were helping people in the projects, helping people that uh, were downtrodden get basic necessities like food, clothing, and, and working with them on things like that. And uh, now they're saying that they have severed that relationship with Church of the Highlands for one of the craziest reasons I've ever heard. It's apparently because the founder of that church and the, the minister there, the main one, Church of the Highlands is a little bit different for those of you who don't know. They actually have multiple campuses across the state. They have one here in Montgomery. They have one in Auburn. And they have preachers and ministers there as well, but they also have like a main minister that does a simulcast for the services. So they just sort of video him in for worship in, in Auburn and Montgomery. I don't know if they do that every Sunday, but I know that's a, a common practice with them. Anyway, so, so he's kind of the big wig over Church of the Highlands. And what's interesting here is he just, they found out that he liked some Charlie Kirk tweets. Now, for those of you who don't know Charlie Kirk, he is the founder of Turning Point USA. He's a conservative. And uh, it's just fascinating to me that just by liking some of his tweets, apparently the housing authority there in Birmingham said that that was a bridge too far and we can no longer enjoy a relationship with Birmingham. They said specifically that the message that Charlie Kirk put out there that this guy apparently likes and, and he follows Charlie Kirk on Twitter is something that does not comport with their values. It's not something that falls in line with their particular worldview, which okay, let's say it were David Duke and he liked a whole bunch of really horrible racist tweets that David Duke put out. Okay, I see where you're coming from if that happens. I don't know that liking somebody's tweets or following them should be grounds for that. But even if you were going to come up with a perfect scenario of why you would want to cancel somebody because of tweets that they liked, that would kind of be your go-to example. But What's crazy about this is they uh, apparently one of the tweets that became a, a big issue that Charlie Kirk put out there is when he was criticizing Governor Ralph Northam, who, if you may recall, Governor Ralph Northam is the guy that dressed up as either the guy in blackface in college or the guy in the Klan suit. I'm not sure which one is better or worse, and we never were able to figure out whether he was the one in blackface or in the Klan costume. Either way, not a good look for the governor of Virginia. And that's who Charlie Kirk was calling out, and he was calling him out specifically on that because he is a person that used to wear blackface, apparently. And that's what they take issue with? It doesn't make any sense. Charlie Kirk is calling out a person for his racism, the preacher there at Church of the Highlands is liking that he's calling out the governor of Virginia for his racism. 
And now the housing authority of Birmingham is saying that he's unfit to have a relationship with these people and, and help them uh, get clothing and food and all the other things. And, and this, which is the largest partnership in, in Alabama, the largest church in Alabama there in, in Birmingham. That's, that's your big takeaway. That's your line too far. That doesn't make any sense. And here's another thing too. Let's take the names and the specifics out of this for just a second to help us understand this. Liking a person's tweet and liking tweets from a person does not mean that you agree with absolutely everything that that person says. Case in point, I'm a pretty conservative guy. I think most people would tell you that if asked. And uh, don't really like socialism, not a big fan of communism, so on and so forth. I follow Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I follow Bernie Sanders. I follow Elizabeth Warren. I follow, if I'm not mistaken, every single Democrat candidate that was running this year. So, all of them. I also follow a whole bunch of publications that I don't necessarily agree with. I follow HuffPo and Vox and... Uh, I mean, all kinds of them. And occasionally, I will even like their tweets because I follow them. Sometimes they'll say something that makes sense. I have liked AOC tweets before. I have liked Bernie Sanders tweets before. Now, normally, we wound up arriving at the those conclusions through a different uh, a different method. Like if Bernie Sanders said something that I thought was actually good, I'm sure that he got there for a completely different reason than I did. But the point is... You know, like, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that Elizabeth Warren or uh, AOC tweeted out something about uh, how we, uh, how pornography uh, exploits women. Okay, well, well, that would be something that they would theoretically say, and I would agree with. I don't know if they've actually said that or not. I'm not sure about their stance on that. I'm just using that as a hypothetical. So just liking someone, especially following them, doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they say, but liking one of their tweets does not mean that you agree with every single person that they say. And the craziest thing on this is, and this will show you that I'll defend people even if I don't agree with everything that they believe, I'm really not a big Charlie Kirk fan. I'm not. I don't hate him. I don't think he's terrible. And he says some things that I agree with, I'm sure. But uh, as far as political commentators go, Charlie Kirk's actually pretty darn low on my list. I, I'm not a big fan of a lot of Charlie Kirk's work. I think that he is unnecessarily uh, abrasive. I think that he's too much of a, a bomb thrower. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of his economic policy. He's actually much more of a moderate than a conservative on a lot of his economic policy, his stance on things like welfare, so on and so forth. And when it comes to Church of the Highlands, I'm not a big fan of Church of the Highlands either. I mean, I don't hate them. I have really good friends from there. There's people that have been guests on this show that are either members or former members. I work with people at the radio station, not going to say who, but there are people at the radio station there at Cumulus that go to Church of the Highlands. I don't think they're terrible people, but I don't agree with a lot of the, the theology that they teach. I disagree with sort of the trapping and, and what they surround themselves with in the church building. I don't agree with their method of worship in a lot of ways. But the point is, I'm not defending these people because I have some kind of dog in the fight. I just think that it's utterly ridiculous that this becomes the standard. And this is about as good an example of cancer, uh, cancer, cancel culture as you will ever see. The fact that you're even adjacent to somebody that they find detestable or that I disagree with 
that you've got to be cast out of polite society and we can't have a relationship with you anymore. I think really one of the funniest points that you can make in all of this is that, ironically, they have made Charlie Kirk an incredibly powerful person by doing this. Think about this. Charlie Co- Kirk's influence is so broad and so powerful that just because other people like things that he says, he can get them fired. That's a lot of power for one man to have. I mean, Charlie Kirk, that guy's got a level of influence I can't even understand if that is the standard they're going with right now. But apparently that's how it works. It's just mind-blowing what this is going to, but the thing is, and this is the thing that I find so... It's the, the big slice of irony in the middle of this whole thing. When it comes to Charlie Kirk and, and Turning Point USA, who do some things that I agree with and some things that I don't, because they disagree with him, because they find at least some of the stuff that he says offensive, they have not only cast out him from their inner circle, but anybody that even likes him or agrees with him on some things. They are the intolerant bigots that they claim that Charlie Kirk is. Now, Charlie Kirk is certainly not a racial bigot. I mean, he's a guy that works close. The two people that he works most closely with are Dennis Prager, an Orthodox Jew, and Candace Owens, who is a black conservative. Those are the two people he has worked with more than anybody else in his career, at least as far as I know. And he doesn't mind having a plethora of different ideas. I've heard him have on his programs, or I've heard him go on to other conservative programs, people that wildly disagree with him on certain issues, but he's still willing to have the conversation. The Housing Authority of Birmingham is saying, nope, the fact that you even like some things that this guy says means that you are an anathema and we cannot tolerate being around you. They are the bigots that they claim that Charlie Kirk is. They are the ones that are intolerant and close-minded and refuse to even entertain the thought of associating with a person that liked some of his tweets. That's about as intolerant as it gets. I don't think that you can get any more intolerant than that. He's just adjacent to a person that they do not like. It really does blow my mind. And on all of this, I think that we could all stand to be a little bit more open-minded if there was any takeaway from this particular story. I think that that would be it. Be willing to listen to people that disagree with you and, and even be willing to have a relationship with people that disagree with you because, ironically, the people that are going to be hurt most by this decision by the Birmingham Housing Authority are primarily people that are minority, that are poor, that are not going to have the blessing of working with these people. Now, if the Church of the Highlands is any kind of church at all, and granted, I don't, I don't know a ton about their theology. I just know that we have some disagreements on certain things. But if they are anything that even somewhat resembles the church that Jesus Christ built, they're going to figure out a way to help these people regardless. And so I don't think that necessarily nullifying that partnership is going to greatly hinder that. I don't know. But when it comes to this, it's funny because... For the longest time, secular liberals have made the case when it comes to things like, for example, child adoption. When Christians say, well, God designed the family to have a mother and a father, and so most Christians believe either that gay couples shouldn't be allowed to adopt, or if gay couples are allowed to adopt, and by the way, this is my position, 
then they should do so on the basis of they get absolute last priority. The best thing for a child is having both a mother and a father. Therefore, every couple that is a heterosexual married couple should get priority over a gay couple just like they would over a single person that's wanting to adopt. And so they have said stuff like that makes us bigots and close-minded and homophobic and all of that stuff. And yet what they're doing here is they're saying, because the liberal argument is always, what, you'd rather the kid just not have parents? Well, again, I actually think it just should just be a priority thing, but there is a legitimate, there is a legitimate argument to be made through uh, pediatricians, medical doctors, so on and so forth. I'm not going to go in, all into it here because that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But there is legitimate concern that that might be something that's not best for the kid. In this one, they're saying anybody that even associates with somebody that we disagree with, we don't want that person feeding the hungry. We, we don't want them feeding the hungry. We don't want them clothing the poor. That's something that we cannot stand and tolerate. It's utterly ridiculous. I, I don't understand the mentality. I don't agree with Church of the Highlands on a lot of things. Theologically, I'm sure. But I wouldn't say, no, no, don't feed those hungry people because you and I have some theological disagreements. I wouldn't go down to the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Catholic church and say, no, I'd rather you not feed these people or clothe these people or do any benevolence work because you and I just don't see eye to eye on things like the necessity of baptism or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or some kind of theological issue that I have between those people. It's not a thing that is going to happen. Yet the left, like I said, absolutely prove themselves once again to be the intolerant bigots they claim Christians are. All right, let's go ahead and go to a break, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. You messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, the World Health Organization... I got to tell those guys change their mind more than a woman in a, a shoe store. It doesn't matter what opinion they take. You have no idea what opinion they're going to take tomorrow. It's one of the most fascinating things that I have seen in a really long time. They just continuously contradict themselves. Now, to extend some grace to their credit, they are a organization that is supposed to deal in things of medical science. And the thing about science is science changes on a pretty regular basis, but not as regular as they change. So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, you may recall that we talked about this briefly. We just kind of touched on it. We didn't really dive deep into it, but the World Health Organization announced yesterday that they believe, according to their most recent research, that the transmission of asymptomatic people doesn't happen. In other words, you remember that when we were talking about flattening the curve and making sure that everybody stays safe from the coronavirus, the primary argument for that, the main reason that we did things like shutting down schools, shutting down colleges, and keeping young people from getting it, even though we knew the mortality rate was virtually non-existent if you were below a certain age, even though we knew that that mortality rate was, was so low that there was virtually no risk to children or young people, I mean, almost nobody, even under the age of 40, dies from this thing. 
But even though we knew that, the argument for shutting down the whole of society and quarantining even healthy people is that we said, well, the thing is, we could have people that have coronavirus that don't know that they're having it, and because it takes so long for this thing to manifest, because you can be walking around with this thing for about three or four days before you even start showing symptoms. And in those three or four days when you're asymptomatic, you could transfer the virus to potentially dozens of people in that amount of time. Well, the World Health Organization came out yesterday and said, uh, actually, no. In fact, asymptomatic transmission of the virus is very, very rare. People that don't have symptoms are incredibly unlikely to transfer it. And I'm not sure exactly why this is the case or why they would come out with that. And then the very next day, today came out and said, uh, actually, it's not really very rare. In fact, we believe, based on our new information, that it may be anywhere from 6 to 41% of all transmissions coming from asymptomatic people. Yeah, maybe half a percent is rare. A quarter of a percent is rare. I would even go as high as maybe 2 or 3%. That would I would say that saying that that is, quote-unquote, very rare is probably fair. You get much past that and you're in just rare, maybe not very rare category. 41% ain't very rare. 6% ain't even very rare. And so they do contradict themselves in less than 24 hours. Now, I get it. Science is changing all the time. You get information that comes out, you realize that that information wasn't good when new information comes out, so you adjust yourself. Maybe, theoretically, that is what's happening here. But in less than 24 hours, I rather doubt that. And I also think that, let's just say that they were going off of a whim, and then they did get new information. Well, that's a pretty stark contrast and a pretty big difference in how that affects the way that we behave, what our policy should be, that kind of thing. So if that's the case, then it was wildly irresponsible if asymptomatic transmission is not very rare for them to have said that yesterday. If this is something that really is up in the air and they really don't know, then they shouldn't say anything until they are pretty darn sure. I would, you know, maybe say two weeks, three weeks, a month. If there had been that lag between them... Maybe they have something to work with, but the thing is, this is the modus operandi of the World Health Organization at this point, sadly. Unfortunately, this is where we are at this point. When it comes to not only whether or not asymptomatic people can even pass the virus along, of course we have that rebuttal that we're, or sorry, that walk back that we're talking about today, but they've had about, oh, I don't know, 18 different positions on masks, whether they help, whether they don't help, whether you're supposed to wear them to keep you from getting the virus, whether you're supposed to wear them to keep from transferring the virus, whether you should wear them outside or inside, whether they make any difference at all or they are an incredibly crucial difference, what kind of mask is effective, what kind of mask isn't effective. They have, over the span of about three months, taken completely separate it's completely different, I mean like 180 different, not just we adjusted some portion of it. I mean, went from the masks don't help at all to, oh, you absolutely have to wear the mask, and in fact, every country should enact mandatory mask wearing. I mean, two positions that could not possibly be any further apart. 
And so this is what we're seeing here out of the World Health Organization. It is indeed the latest 180 that they do trying to do mental gymnastics and explain themselves. Here's the, the thing that I think happened. This is the only explanation that I can come up with in my head that makes sense. And remember, I'm not a doctor. I'm a political guy. So, of course, my answer is going to revolve around politics, not medical science. I mean, I've looked at the medical science, I've researched the medical science, but these are the guys that are supposed to be the experts on medical science, and they're not behaving as people that are being experts in political science, or sorry, in medical science. So I think what's actually going on here is that the reason that they're doing this, they're operating like politicians, not like doctors, because you can explain all of this doing somersaults in the air trying to justify your position if you understand politicians, it doesn't make any sense if you are someone who understands and deals in the realm of medicine. Because this makes perfect sense to me. I think what happened is what happens to a lot of political people, whether it's a mayor, a governor, a congressman, something like that. They had a person that went out and accidentally told the truth. I think that's what happened yesterday. Now, maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's because I really do want asymptomatic people to not be contagious, which, by the way, that even became political yesterday, and I don't understand that at all. Shouldn't everybody want it to be to where asymptomatic people are not contagious? That would be a very, very good thing for, you know, team human. That would kind of be something that would benefit all of us. So even, I mean, if it turns out that they are contagious, that that's really bad, and we need to accept that wherever the science leads— but you certainly shouldn't be rooting for it to be where asymptomatic people can spread this thing. That seems like an odd position to be pulling for. But anyway, when it comes to this and, and when it comes to the World Health Organization's decision-making, I think what happened is they had a single person that accidentally told the truth. And the World Health Organization immediately realized, well, wait a second, if that's the case then it's not going to be real long before people start figuring out, yeah, that was the whole reason that you told us that we had to all go into a worldwide lockdown is because you were telling us that asymptomatic people were contagious and now we find out that they aren't. And so because they looked and saw that the facts made them look bad, they did what politicians do. And that is backtrack and try to do damage control and try to explain away. And by the way, if you read their statement on it, they were definitely trying to explain away the research that the person was presenting the other day, uh, even though they wound up tying themselves in pretzels trying to do it, which again, more indicative of something a politician would do than a doctor. They came out the other day and, and tried to do damage control and walk back just like politicians tend to do. These guys are career bureaucrats that operate within the realm of politics. The head of the WHO, the first one ever that is not a medical doctor. He is a politician from Ethiopia, who, by the way, is in the pocket for China, but that's a lesson for another day. Anyway, it just it's abundantly clear when you understand politics and understand how that works and when you understand that they're doing this as a PR stunt as opposed to actually giving good health information that it seems as though the primary, what's the best way, the, the crux that their entire lockdown argument was based upon got dismantled the other day, and they immediately had to walk it back because they know that they would all look like idiots. What happened yesterday is they were saying, 
please restore our funding. Please, America, don't defund us. Please continue to give us this money. We promise we're not nearly as incompetent as your president says we are. We do know what we're talking about. We were right then and we're right now. We were always right. So please continue to fund us. That's what the WHO did the other day. One side note that I will add to this. My friends and I have had a field day using the Abbott and Costello thing. Who said that? Yes, I, that's what I'm saying. Who said that? So that was, that was pretty fun. I encourage you to do that with the next big World Health Organization story that comes out uh, with your buddies as well. But ultimately, this boils down to if you understand politics, you do understand what's going on there because the World Health Organization is a political organization, not a health organization. They just happen to be policy people that work in the field of medicine. That's all they are. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today, we actually are going to be getting back to our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And the important thing to know, and I'm going to refresh your memory because I know it's been a few days since we were in this series... This is Samuel addressing Israel. He knows that he's at the very end of his life. He knows that he is not going to last much longer. And so this is kind of Samuel signing off his final message to Israel before he dies. And at this point, keep in mind, he has already anointed Saul as king. He's actually already anointed David king, even though Saul doesn't know that. He's not privy to that, at least not yet. And so Samuel's work is pretty much drawing to a close at this point. And so this is one of his final acts as the, in fact, I believe it is the final act, the final miracle that is uh, talked about in the Bible. So this is 1 Samuel twelve sixteen through 18, where he says, Even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call the Lord, I will call to the Lord, that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great with you, uh, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. This is a really, the thing that is, I think, really a, a sticking out point of this story, something that really just sort of leaps off the page at you, is that the king has already been anointed. Saul is already on the throne. And God has actually already chosen king number two, who's waiting in the wings. And so even though God sanctioned it and ordained it and allowed it to take place, he wants to remind Israel that this was their idea not his. That this was a plan cropped up by men, not God. Now, God was the one that did the selecting of the king, and God was the one that tried to, to make sure that he was an integral part of that process. But ultimately, it's important for us to remember that that is not what God wanted. He says that when they originally asked for a king, 
He says it when he finally capitulates and allows them to have a king. And he says it right here. God's plan was always for Israel to see himself as a king. His plan was always for Israel to be more or less self-governing and self-regulating and look to God as their ultimate sovereign and master. And Israel, because they couldn't stand being different, they couldn't stand being the only kid in town that didn't have a king to guide them, they demanded that God give them a king, and finally he relented and said, okay, but trust me, you're not going to like it. And, and Samuel just got done basically rehashing that, and now he's even giving a sign. On the day of the wheat harvest, which is one of the busiest days of the year in an agrarian society, the day that they're supposed to go out and, and gather all of the food that is going to sustain them through the winter, God causes a big calamity to hit them. And basically, he's saying, this is a reminder that you did sin, that you did wrong in asking for a king. I find that really fascinating because this is, I don't know exactly the amount of time, but this is a considerable amount of time after Saul has been anointed and also after God intervened to make sure that Saul had some credibility and was made king over the entire kingdom. And so, God has even played a part not only in picking and selecting a king, but also in solidifying Saul's rule and authority over all of Israel. And yet he's still saying, I just want to remind you that the king was not my idea. That's on y'all. And I want to remind you that this sin that took place, I just want to make it abundantly clear for all future generations to remember this was not my plan. And when your children and grandchildren look back and see, and by the way, of course, God looking into the future knew this, that you look all throughout Israel's history and the vast majority of kings were evil, wicked idolaters that caused Israel to sin. They're going to remember that it was your generation that started all of this. Just because I'm allowing for this to happen doesn't mean I approved it. We actually see this play out quite eloquently in the New Testament, when the Pharisees and the rulers and lawyers and people who really knew the law of Moses ask Jesus Christ, they said, so why is it if it's wrong to divorce your wife for any reason? Why is it then that Moses said you just have to write a certificate of divorce? And do you remember what Jesus' answer was there? He said, because of the hardness of your hearts. So in other words, God allowed for a institution to take place even though it was not his ideal. He allowed it to take place because he knew that the hearts of men were evil and wicked, and just like there were going to be a whole bunch of people that wanted to divorce their wives, even though God hates that and does not want them to engage in it, he knew that Israel was going to get a king one way or the other, and so he allowed for that institution to take place, even though that wasn't what God wanted himself. It was not part of God's ideal, but because of man's wickedness, he made an accommodation for them. And so, God is just making it abundantly clear here, just so everyone remembers from here to the end of time, this wasn't my plan. And so, I think that it's, it's interesting and actually almost a little bit humorous that God does this to make sure that they remember that he did not sanction that, he's not the one that wanted that. But I think that there is a secondary reason that God chooses to do this and, and bring a storm in this way. And it shows, it talks about how much they feared Samuel and feared 
more specifically God for doing this and, and for what he has done with the thunder and the storms and everything that comes down upon them. I think that one thing that God was also trying to illustrate and, and the message that he was trying to convey to his people is, can your king do that? So Saul, who is, of course, the person that I appointed, and he's a mighty man of war, and he's been able to lead Israel's troops into battle and protect you. Yeah, can he do that? Can he make a storm? Can he wipe out a wheat crop if he wants to? Can he bring down divine punishment and judgment and see all sides? Is he all-knowing? Did he create the universe? No? Okay, then maybe you should be listening to me instead of your king when your king tells you to go out and worship other gods. So yes, I do think that in part, at least part of this was God looking back and reminding them and punishing them for the sin of asking for a king, but I think a lot of it was also God looking forward to giving them a very visual, very obvious reminder that I'm actually in charge. Your king is just a steward that I have allowed to take power and authority that I sanctioned him to have. It comes from me. And for the Israelites that remembered that lesson, they were going to be the ones that weren't led astray by evil kings that had evil intentions in their heart. And I think that's a lesson that is 100% relevant to us today. You know, we as Christians complain a lot, and I, I think sometimes it's justified, sometimes we're being a little melodramatic, just like they were in Bible times, about what's going on with our country and our government. And we remember that the world, as Jesus predicted, is always going to hate the righteous. No matter what form it takes, governments are always going to oppose us, whether it's our own government or a foreign government. There's always going to be an aspect of the world that sees us as people that they can't get along with. And there are legitimate reasons to call out for our religious liberty being inhibited, especially in the past few months. But ultimately, the message there is, remember, I'm your king, they're not. I'm the one that's actually in charge. They're not. Can they make a thunderstorm? Can they bring down judgment on people? No. Then maybe you should be listening to me instead of them. That's the message. It's a message that he was bringing to Israel and remembering that it doesn't matter how bad your government is. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter how powerful they are or how much they curtail your religious liberty or your other rights. Ultimately, God is the one that is in control. And that's a message that is 100% as, re as relevant to us today as it was to Israel right then. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.